are unblushing promises of staggering nature in the Bible. Unblushing promises of staggering nature. That's C.S. Lewis's words. Maybe you know this quote. I've read it to you more than once. Lewis said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or an all-inclusive, expenses-paid cruise at sea. We are too easily pleased. One of these unblushing promises of staggering nature is what you see on the screen, that we are partakers of the divine nature. That is an unblushing promise. How do you tell mortals in the face, as Second Peter did, or Peter did in his second epistle, you are a partaker of the divine nature. And that is a staggering promise. Here are some examples. Second um, Peter, first of all, Second P- Peter one verse four says this: "By which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature." He didn't say that you would become or replace the divine nature, but that you would partake in it. That he would make room for you to share in his divine nature, or consider. John chapter 1. We read this um, through Advent. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right, or the Greek says the power, to become children of God. What does that mean, children of God? It means who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God. That's a staggering promise. It's an unblushing promise. I can't say that without blushing. But God tells it just directly. Consider Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. In the old days, what would happen is the firstborn inherited the majority of the inheritance. The others got little parcels. We are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that God is treating us, his children, As equals to Christ, we inherit, Paul says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He goes on in Romans 8, you guys know um, 8.28, for we know that he works all things together for good to those who love him. But 29 and 30 are less known. The next verses say this, 
for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Who are the brothers? The sisters. That's us. Brothers and sisters of Christ. He's the foremost among the brothers and sisters. Then he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means made like you haven't sinned. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean except that we partake in the divine nature? What our series is doing is it's mimicking epiphany on the west, in the east. Church It's also called theophany. Both just mean the manifestation of God. Um, And on this Sunday, they look at the original manifestation of God in Christ at his baptism. Because there, God reveals himself as a holy trinity. Right there, some eyes roll, oh, the trinity. Hold on, just stay with me. Um, Because the trinity is so bizarre, it is so odd, it is so out there, that you know for certain that our faith is true. Because nobody who says, let's just get people in on this new religion we're creating, would think the Trinity's great marketing material. Everyone will get it. Everyone will love it. No, that's not true. And so we know that the Trinity was a a revelation of God to us, that the church even bothered saying there is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that they even bothered having church councils to try to define what that means and what that doesn't mean. You know your faith is true, and that's what we're going to see tonight. Partakers of the divine nature, in other words, is going to start with the manifestation of God at the baptism of Christ— We're going to continue on through his Sermon on the Mount, where he's going to show us what it looks like to partake in his nature. What does the nature of Christ look like in a human life? It looks like this sermon. Then we will close with another manifestation of Christ, when he is transfigured, or when that we will be glorified. The glory of Christ is shown through him to the disciples, showing us what's to come for his people. So we are going to be looking at partakers of the divine nature for the next six weeks. Ironically, uh, when Epiphany, the day of Epiphany was the sixth, while this is the day the church has traditionally and historically for a very, 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 very long time has celebrated that manifestation of the true God, our nation had a different manifestation. Oh, the irony of what happened at the Capitol building. The same day, So let me clarify before we go forward. What are we saying by being partakers of the divine nature? We are not saying that we are absorbed into the divine nature. That would be those weird spirituality religions that just say you you just become one with the all-being. That is not what we're saying. This is not absorption into God. This is participation in who God is and in his life. You are still you while you're participating in God's Nature and God is still God. We are still distinct, yet we are brought together as one. That's what we're saying. This is participation, not absorption. Also, we are we are not saying that we are sharing in God's essence. Mortals cannot touch his essence. He is uncreated, we're created. That will never change. We will always be created beings. He will always be the uncreated being. 
We are not sharing in his essence, but we are sharing in his likeness. That's what we mean when we say partakers of the divine nature. We are going to go on a six-week journey of sharing in the likeness of God. Boy, am I excited. Brothers and sisters, the Sermon on the Mount has been on my heart for weeks now. Months, really. About two months, I guess. It's good stuff. I regret that I've limited myself to six weeks. But it's important because we do want to get back to our study through Scripture as well. So, all right. In a, in a methodical manner, book by book. So we're not cherry-picking what we want to do and avoid what we don't want to do. That's very important. All right, so... All that said, um, I've given that, the series out to you. I hope that you will be enriched by this, that you will participate in the divine nature as we grow together in Christ-likeness, because that is why we are here. Why, when you are saved, did you not just get teleported to heaven? If the goal is to go to heaven, why are we not there? And that would mean your life is a waste. Do not see going to heaven as the aim of your salvation. The aim of your salvation is to become like God. It's God-likeness. He saved you from darkness and from idolatry so that we can be restored to his likeness. We were made in his image, but we gave up his likeness in the fall. Christ has come in the image and likeness of God so that he could bring his brothers and sisters into the fullness and likeness of God. That's why we're saved. Salvation is my becoming like God. That's where you will thrive. That's where your problems of depression, of addiction, of darkness, of sin will be cured is when we get closer in likeness to God. Yes, you will still go to heaven, so don't worry about that. That's just not the aim. The aim of going to heaven is so that we're sharing in his divine likeness. So participating in that on earth is the point of going to church. It's the point of saying you're a Christian. It's the point of doing it early instead of waiting on your deathbed. Will God accept you on your deathbed? Yes. But what a miserable life to wait till then. You will have said, why didn't I do that when I was seven? And I would say, "You sh- yes, why not? Tonight. Why not tonight? You've just been, I'll just kind of hang out. And when I'm done and I'm tired of the world, I'll, I'll devote myself to Christ. Tonight is the night you're going to go on this journey of partaking in the divine nature with us. And the light of Christ will shine in our midst. And humans will glorify our God in heaven, saying, what is this? We need this. All right. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Christ's baptism reveals for the first time clearly to the world that God is a holy trinity. There have been hints and echoes. For example, in the creation story, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. The spirit is hovering over the waters. His word is moving and making things happen. And we see, oh, spirit, word, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see hints. Let us make man in our image. We see hints, but it's never right quite there it's just it's like it's on the fringe but right here for the first time when jesus is first his first public declaration to the world before he gives a single sermon before he says a single word before he heals a single person he comes to be baptized by john and in that process the world is clearly shown that god is one essence in three persons Christ is there in the water. The Father speaks through the voice, This is my Son, and the Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. So let's look at that. Spirit as a dove in 3.16. The Spirit came upon him as a dove. This is a powerful moment. Why a dove? Why did the Spirit come in the form of a dove? Why not in the form of a hawk or an eagle? Something majestic. Perhaps because in Genesis 1 verse 2, we read that there the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, that's our English. Uh, The Jews, at Jesus' time, were reading what's called the Targum. The Targum was an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. So, so real quick history lesson. The Jews spoke Aramaic during Jesus' time, not Hebrew. History lesson over. (laughs) You're like, why? Tell me more. Sorry. Um... So the Targum translates Genesis 1 to like this. The Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters like a dove. And does Mark, uh, is Matthew aware of this? You bet. You bet. It's no accident that he makes sure to record the Spirit came like a dove. So that all there would know what this signifies. By the way, Christ is in the waters too. This is, this, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, second, though, the flood. You might remember Noah on the, on the ark when they thought that perhaps it was time to see if the waters were residing. He sent out the dove, and the dove returned with the olive branch, signifying somewhere there's new life, there's a new world to come. And the dove brought that. And so here's the dove. The God who created is the God who's redeeming now here in Christ. The spirit over the waters. The spirit also bringing the olive branch. The spirit of promise that there is a world to come. And that world to come is coming in fulfillment right here through my son. Right here in Christ. That's the spirit. The significance of the spirit like a dove. Then we see in verse 17, we see the father's voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Obviously it's the father's voice because he calls Jesus his son. Psalm 2, verse 7 is behind this. You might remember um, in Psalm 2, verse 7, the nations are, or in Psalm 2, the nations are writing saying, get rid of God! God's in the heavens laughing at them and saying, you really think you can get rid of me? 
Come storm my capital. Good luck. And there it says in Psalm 2-7, God says, you are my son. It's talking about the Hebrew king. At least that's the way the Jews would have read it. The Hebrew king is God's son whom he's ruling through. But now when Jesus comes out of the waters, it's like his coronation. The spirit coming upon him like the anointing oil and the voice saying, like Psalm 2, this is my son. This is the king whom I have set in place to rule the world despite the rebellion of the nations. This is who it is. It's a coronation moment when the voice, the father says, this rise king of the world. And also behind this, whom my beloved son, behind this is Genesis 22 verse 2. You know, you remember Genesis 22, where Abraham is told, Take Isaac, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. In the Greek there, your only son whom you love, uh, where the Jews translated the Bible into Greek, uh, it reads exactly the same. Uh, well, the two words, son and love, is just the same here as when he says, My beloved son. So also behind this is Genesis 22, in which we see Jesus is the sacrifice for the world. And, more so, think about Abraham. Isaac was the promise he waited for. Wait, and we looked at that over Advent. The waited for son and how long he waited. And it came to the power of God. And God had told Abraham, look, I am going to make of you a great nation. And through this nation, I will bless all nations. But God, how are you going to do that? I'm childless. I will give you a child. The child comes. And then God says, all right, give him to me. What? But then, of course, God spares him and brings a sacrifice, a ram. And then God says, because I know you love me, Abraham, now I will affirm that through your offspring, through your offspring, I will bless the nations and I will break the gates of your enemies. What is this? What's that saying? Christ is the offspring of Abraham. He's that hope for one who's going to bless the nations and break the gates of the enemy. A lot packed into one statement. I think God knows what he's saying. Indeed. Let there be light. One statement. There was light. No contest, no debate. <laughs> Just let there be. And there was. All right. So Christ's baptism reveals God as Holy Trinity. Christ's baptism also, second, renews all creation so we could be baptized into him. His baptism renews all creation, you and I, all creation, so that we can be baptized into him. Yes, Christ was in the Jordan River being baptized. But while Christ was baptized in the Jordan, it was really the Jordan and all creation that was baptized in Christ at that moment. Why did Christ get baptized? He didn't need to confess any sins. He didn't need to repent. Did he do it for our example? Maybe. Most likely, he did it so that the entire creation could be baptized into him, so that when we are baptized, we're not just sprinkled with the ordinary water. We are now being baptized into the one who in the water brought the whole cosmos to renewal in himself. While he was in the, while he was in the Jordan, it was really the Jordan all creation that was being baptized into Christ. The Son of God had come, and when he touches, it gets healed. What he touches gets healed, and the world is being sanctified because he has come. 
So we see him do this uh, in two ways. We see him coming to baptize the world into him uh, because first he comes and identifies with sinners. He comes and identifies with sinners. Look at this. In verse 13, where did I go? Verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. What's happening here? To be baptized by John. John's like, oh, you should baptize me. Christ's like, no, you must baptize me for this will fulfill all righteousness. What's happening? Well, we see that Jesus submits to baptism before he commits to his mission. For Jesus, it's submission before its mission. In other words, Jesus is showing us that I'm not going to command you to submit to me. I'm also going to submit to what I'm asking you to do because I'm not that kind of ruler. I am submitting my life to righteousness. I am submitting my life to change. I'm submitting my life to God's way so that when I ask you to do the same, you can do so because you've been baptized into me and you can follow me. And it also shows us the importance that if Christ won't preach and heal people before he has made sure that he has done the right thing, we too must make sure that we look and confess and renew, uh, repent from our sins before we go out into the world and try to heal people. We can't heal the hurting. We can't heal the sick. We can't heal the sinner if we have not been healed. We can't bring light if we're carrying darkness. We must submit to the teachings of the Bible. We must submit to the Lordship of Christ. We must submit. All that is what baptism means. When you're baptized, you're committing yourself, you're submitting yourself to the teachings of our faith. And unless you do that, you cannot go on mission because your mission is in vain. Only those submitted to their faith are those who are powerful enough to bring mission to the world. Read all the saints. Read all the powerful people God used. Not one of them was doing their own thing. They were all submitted to Christ and his teachings. So Jesus is identifying with us sinners by doing the same. Um, Notice also, can you imagine the thugs that are there at the Jordan River, drawn to John's teaching? Here's the Lord with the servants. Here's the judge with the criminals. And he's going to the same waters. He is identifying with us sinners. He was baptized among us so that we could be baptized into him. Second, um, so he's identifying with the sinners, but now we see that he's, in his baptism, he's opening up the heavens. You'll notice that in verse 16. And when he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And so too, to you, when you are baptized into Christ, the heavens are opened. It means that earth is no longer our only inheritance. But the heavens that Adam closed in his sin and in the fall, the heavens that Adam closed when Eden was shut off from us, the heavens that Adam closed, Christ opened in his baptism. Christ opened those heavens so that the voice can now speak to us and say, this is your inheritance, partaking with me and in my divine nature. You no longer have to look at earth as your only home. The heavens that Adam shut were opened by Christ. And as St. John Chrysostom in his sermon on the baptism of Jesus, he said this about this part. He said that the heavens are opened in order for you to ascend there and to lead up others also. 
So he's opening the heavens saying, this is your home. And so that we can say, there it is. Come with me. Come with me. Be baptized into Christ. And we can leave him there. And then he finishes by saying, such great confidence and power has he bestowed on you in all that he is. In other words, he's put himself, his divine nature into us so that we can indeed enter the heavens that have been opened through Christ's baptism. So that's what we're saying. In the Jordan, it was the Jordan in all creation. It was us. It was all creation that was baptized into Christ. Fear not, Adam. Fear not, Eve. Hide no longer, for he has come to bring us back. So that's what I take to mean when Jesus tells John that his baptism fulfills all righteousness. What's wrong with the world? It's all being healed right there in the Jordan. Now let's talk about this holy trinity, shall we? Because if we're going to be partakers in the divine nature, we need to understand this holy trinity a little bit more. Don't worry. We're not going to try to solve it. I'm not going to give you mathematical formulas that are going to crack the case. The trinity is difficult, yes. But it's practical. It's practical. So let's talk about what it is. Just in one statement, the church has taught this. That Christ, I'm sorry, uh, that God is one nature and one essence in three persons. One nature and essence in three persons. What that means is he's a unity. He's a unity. There's one identity. It's God. Holy Spirit is God. Son is God. Father is God. One identity. That's the unity. But there's also diversity in the fact that there's distinction between the three. The Son redeems us. The Spirit enters us. The Father creates. The Father loves us. The Father sends His Son. We see that there's distinctions right here at the Jordan River. There's Son. There's Father. There's Spirit coming down on Son. So there's unity, but there's also diversity. All right? Um, now, to, to understand this, uh, or t- what we need to see is that by saying that there's one essence and three persons, we need to have both. Because what happens is when you emphasize one and neglect the other, you go into heresy. For example, modalism. Modalism emphasizes the fact that God is one and neglects the fact that he's three. In other words, what they would say is that there's one God in three modes or manifestations. Hence modalism. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, that's the only, so the sing, there's just one God manifesting himself in the flesh and suffering. When the Holy Spirit is falling upon believers, now he's not on the cross, he's over here manifesting in a different way. So that's one God only acting in different modes. So when you say the three persons, they're not three persons, they're just three different modes of being for him. So I'm in my preaching mode, I'm in my reclusive mode, and I'm in my grumpy mode. That, I, right, that, that can summarize Brandon right there. Um, the other extreme, the other heresy, the imbalanced view, would be tritheism. That's where, it's the opposite of modalism, emphasizes one God, neglects the three persons. Tritheism emphasizes the three, neglects the one. So what tritheism says is that God, uh, God the Father is a different God than God the Son. 
and God the Son is a different God than God the Holy Spirit. What they are are three separate gods who are working in harmony. So, Ron and I are part of this, and we're like, do you think that we should create humans? Well, I don't know. Maybe we should give them three legs. I think we should give them two. And then the third comes and says, yeah, let's settle on two. And we somehow agree in harmony. Nope, that is not it. One essence, three persons. Not three persons and three essences. So, how do you how do you understand then one essence in three persons? How does that make sense? So that they're neither three modes or three individual gods. What took the church lots of discussion and the Trinity was stretching the Greek language when the church was born. It stretched the Greek language and the imagination. Finally, a word was used that seemed to satisfy everyone except for the heretics. Perichoresis. And perichoresis, peri, around, chorus, dance, or choreography, it's the idea of movement around. And what perichoresis means, then, is you could loosely call it a dance, a movement, but mutual indwelling is helpful for me. The perichoresis refers to mutual indwelling. So that what happens is, the father mutually indwells the Son. Mutually means the Son's also indwelling the Father. Both are indwelling each other, and the Spirit indwelling each other, and them indwelling the Spirit. So that within one person, you have the essence of God, Father, Father, (laughs) Father, Son, Spirit. Right there, in one of the persons. The other person, Father, Son, Spirit. Because there's mutual indwelling that does not absorb the one into the other two, but keeps them distinct. So there's union without absorption. That's what mutual indwelling enables. Um, So that God is both one and three. Mutual indwelling. All right, so let's look at this. This perichoresis, the mutual indwelling. In God, it looks like this. Three persons mutually indwelling each other as one. What that means is if a father's mutually indwelling son, and son's mutually indwelling father, and father's mutually indwelling spirit, and spirit mutually indwelling son, and all around. Um, it means that there's movement, there's dynamic here. So that God is a dynamic God, not a static God. This is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And there's Lewis hitting on that Greek word perichoresis. Cornelius Plantiga says this, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to each other. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. I hope the hand gestures are kind of helping make sense of that. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. God, in his essence, is a relationship. The three persons, an eternal, mutual, adoring, worshiping, loving, glorifying relationship with one another. It doesn't stop moving toward one another. So that what God is, is an overflow of his goodness. So when he creates the world, he doesn't create the world because he needs to be loved. 
He didn't create you so that you will worship him. He had absolutely zero need. So God is complete. He didn't create us. Oh, I just need more praise. I need fellowship. He had eternal happiness right there in the Trinity. Eternal happiness, eternal joy, eternal love, eternal glory. What he created us for then is so that we could participate in the eternal happiness, glory, joy, and dance that the Trinity is enacting in. That's wonderful news. We weren't created to be his slaves. We were created to RSVP, to the party he's been throwing for all eternity. That's what we wait. That's what is for us here now as we partake in the divine nature. So God is complete. God is relational. All right. Perichoresis, that's in God. Perichoresis in Christ. We looked at this a lot, so you can go back and hear this if you want more detail. Listen to our message, Preparing with Mary. We talked about Christ's incarnation. Very simply, he is true man and true God. There's two natures in the one Christ. Fully God, fully man. How does that work? How is it that the human nature doesn't overcome the divine nature? Or the divine nature doesn't overcome the human nature? How, how, how do the natures work there in one perichoresis, mutual indwelling? So that the human nature and the divine nature are mutually indwelling in this dance. That's how we get him. Um, St. John of Damascus said this, The natures of Christ, although united, are united without confusion. And although mutually imminent, that's perichoresis, mutually imminent, do not suffer any change or transition of one into the other. Okay, so remember what we said at at Christmas, our Christmas message. He came to assume the nature of humanity so he could heal the nature of humanity. In his two natures, humanity and divinity were united so that humanity could be healed by divinity. And this then leads to us. The perichoresis in us is that our humanity and Christ's divinity are in mutual indwelling, union. This is, this is why Paul says we can, he says you are in Christ. He also says Christ is in you. There's a mutual indwelling. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. There's union. This is perichoresis. So it's not just Christ is in me. That leads me to spirituality. I'm a God. But it's that I'm also in Christ. It's not just I'm in Christ. Good luck, Brandon. Get your act together. Get your things done on your own power. No, Christ also in me, enabling me to live in him. That's the mutual indwelling. We are invited into the dance when we become Christians. When we're baptized into Christ, we enter into this triune perichoresis, this triune mutual indwelling. We are invited into the dance. We're brought into the party before the party's even thrown. The Spirit of God enters into the spirit of humanity so that the Spirit of God can dance with the spirit of humanity. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not to believe creeds and these doctrines and we hold to the Trinity. It's not to believe in that. You do need that. But it is so that... That means my time's up. (laughs) It is so that... I lost my thought. Oh, it is so that we can be in union and fellowship and communion with the God who created all things. This may be perhaps better, may perhaps be better than what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. It's either equal to or better than. 
So we're partakers of the divine nature. St. Gregory, the theologian, that which he has not assumed, he's not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. Rankin-Wilburn, God in Christ assumed our full humanity to heal our full humanity. He came all the way down to blaze a trail all the way back up for us to live in the presence of God. This means, the heavens were opened, right? The heavens were opened as baptism. This means our union with Christ is rooted and grounded in Christ's union with us in the incarnation. We're seeing, this is what's being revealed at his baptism and why the Christian church has always celebrated the baptism of new believers. All right, that's enough. Um, my t- I, I promise you guys will be trying me down at six. It's six now, so I'm wrapping up right now. Um, okay, here's, so here's a, so, okay, the practical, so the pericorsus in us, his divine, our humanity and his divinity in this mutual indwelling, it means we're partakers of the divine nature, which is to that. It also means, second, that we are pulled by God's gravity. Friends, this is important. Because most of humanity lives to pull all things into our gravity. I want you to serve me. I want you to come alongside my agenda. I want you to love me. I want you to... We're always pulling reality and others toward ourselves. And that gets exhausting. But to have participation in the divine nature, which is continually orbiting and dancing and mutually indwelling in itself means that we are pulled into that. It's God who's now pulling us in. And then when we are pulled by God in and through us, he's pulling others around. Uh, I'm sorry, he's, he's, his power in us is helping us to orbit around others. So that now I'm concerned about Kelly, not how Kelly can orbit me and serve me and love me and give glory to me, but how I can give glory and serve and orbit around Kelly and Kate This is what the church, when the church knows the triune God, it models the triune God. When we partake in the divine nature, we're no longer grasping because we have been grasped. And we're now allowing God to move through us. We, in other words, are not static people. Serve me. We are dynamic people, serving, loving, moving. All right. So when, in our conclusion... When we are baptized into Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature, the triune divine nature. We're pulled by God's gravity, but then, finally, we are told that we are his beloved children. As Christ heard, can I beat the last candle? As Christ heard... In the waters of Jordan, so we hear when we are baptized into Christ, when we become partakers of the divine nature, we are told, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You, Amy, are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Sorry, I didn't say your name, Chris. You, Sonia, are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. You, Jim, are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We all hear that. And this is what humanity needs to hear. We are running ourselves ragged trying to earn approval when we all ready have it. Father, thank you for making us your sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased. Pull us into your divine dance.